Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Living Open podcast. This week's episode is on plant magic and Italian folk medicine with Lisa Fazio. Lisa is wonderful and has just so much experience with plants, so much love for plants, and a really grounding presence that I think really comes through in this conversation. Um, I also just wanted to note before I tell you a little bit more about Lisa that I think the podcast is actually gonna stay every other week for now um i know i said we were gonna come back in september every week um but i think my needs have changed and i thought i'd be ready for that and i'm not so um for now you can tune in every other week there's also 273 past episodes to tune back into if you didn't listen to them all or there's one that piques your interest. Um, For now, I'm happy to be pulling back on podcasting just a little bit, still having lots of amazing conversations with really wonderful people, um, but also making a lot more space for writing in my life, and verbal season has been a season of a lot of things, (laughs) but in regards to writing and creativity, of creating some sustainable structures in my life for my writing practice and to be honest it's going really fucking well i'm feeling really good um so i'm leaning into that for now and you can catch some of those writings that i'm doing over on my new substack joynotes.substack.com where i'm sharing writings on being stretched wide by beauty grief and aliveness Um, Free subscribers get one piece of writing a month, paid subscribers get two or more, and the first piece went out last week, and it's called Letting Ourselves Change and Transform. So I'll link to that in the description if you want to check it out. And if you are a paid subscriber or want to be, you'll be getting a piece and poem called Instructions for Being Alive in your inbox next week. So that's the only update that I really have, and let me tell you a little bit about Lisa. Lisa is an Irish-Italian-American herbalist, astrologer, writer, mother, grandmother, and educator. Her principal training is in traditional Western herbalism, Western astrology, and the folkways of her Italian immigrant family. She's also learned directly from observation and interaction with place, landscape, and seasonal cycles, as well as informal mentorship with elders where she learned tracking, foraging, gardening, and small-scale sustainable farming. Her work is primarily grounded in an animistic view of nature and reality and emphasizes direct somatic encounters with plants, the ecosystem, and the ancestors. She thinks of herself as an infinite, imaginal being incarnate as a human, doing her best to remember what it's like to live in multi-generational and multi-species relationship with all time, past, present, and future. 
She has an academic background in psychology and ethnobotany, as well as years of study and practice in the tradition of Trika Shaivism, folk Catholicism, witchcraft, and plant spirit medicine. She lives on unceded Haudenosaunee territory in the foothills of the Adirondack Mountains of New York State, where she raised four children, is an herbal practitioner, social justice, and ecological activist, organizer, and engaged member of her community working to connect with people, connect people with the magic of plants, nature, and their own innate healing potential. She also has a book coming out next year called Della Medicina, Plants of Italian-American Folk Medicine. So yeah, like I said, Lisa has a deep relationship with plants, lots of experience working with plants and cultivating relationship, so it was really cool to have this conversation with her. I also forgot to mention, I think, um, but she uses she, her pronouns, as you could probably guess from me reading her whole bio. Um, in this episode, we get into Lisa's journey with all these things, plant magic, astrology, spirituality, secure attachment through plant relationship, and physical and somatic anchors with plants. I really loved that part. Um, being in service to plants, working with plants on indigenous stolen land, finding home with plants, animism, her relationship to poetry, poems as living things. I totally agree. She also reads us her poem, How to Love a Polluted River. We talk about how her spiritual practice has evolved from growing up Catholic, Italian folk medicine, plants and ancestral connection, simple ways to start to reconnect with ancestral lineages, and how ancestral work can disempower white supremacy. I hope you enjoy this conversation. See you next time. So I always like to start the show by hearing about your journey. So I'd love to hear anything you want to share about your journey with herbs and astrology and writing and how that's brought you to this moment in your life. Sure. Yeah. So my journey with herbs, um, well, to pick a starting point, I would say like the most significant, I think it was always you know, part of who I am, but to pick like a significant point in time was really um, when I was about 22, 23, which is almost 30 years ago now. And I had a young daughter who had chronic ear infections and allergies and stuff. Um, and we went through rounds of antibiotics and they wanted to put tubes in her ears. They sent us to an ENT and ear, nose, throat specialist, and we didn't have health insurance at the time. And so we were going to have to like pay out of pocket or borrow money from our parents or whatever to like get this kid. Ear. And somebody said, uh, what about trying garlic oil? And we were just like, so I don't know, at our wits end that we tried it and she never had another ear infection <laughs> and we did other things too. It wasn't just, that was like that we got, we, we went to an herbalist. There was actually a local herbalist who then became one of my teachers. Um, mm -hmm. and we did a lot of like 
nutrition, dietary changes and, um, elimination of potential allergens and things like that. But so it wasn't just that, but, um, and then I treated myself because I had, um, lifelong allergies, asthma, and, um, some other like chronic things related to that. Um, and then astrology was around the same time because my husband, um, I had met him and he was studying astrology. And so, um, and, and really it was, this was all a big challenge for me because I was raised Catholic. And although I was, if you know anything about Catholicism, it's very pagan. And I was also raised Italian American. And so that's also comes with all of its own like magics and, you know, what some people might call witchcraft, but, um, doing things like herbs and astrology seemed like quite a stretch. And so, um, I kind of was a revolution in a way for me. Mm. So yeah, that's so herbs and astrology. So it's been about 30 years with both of those practices. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm so curious, like how, what's your relationship with plants? Like, um, in like your day to day, what has working with plants taught you? I want to hear all the plant things. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, they're everything to me. <laughs> you know, they really, so I guess really what I, my relationship with plants is still in process, right? Like it's, it's not something that you get to a point where you have a relationship with plants and that's it. And then you're done, you know, it's like, it's continually um, changing, just like a relationship with other humans, I learn more all the time, which is part of what kind of got me hooked on them was there just never is, um, a, there's never, is it, there's no way to get bored, Mm. but really, I guess, initially in some of the initial phases, it really provided me with like an anchor, like a Mm. physical somatic way to be in relationship with, others, others being plants. Um, and, and I think it also provided what you might call secure attachment. So, um, I don't know if people are familiar with that word, but, you know, just a sense of belonging and being held and nourished. Um, and, and, and then it's, you know, really become reciprocal. So I feel like ultimately I'm in service to them mm-hmm. at this point. And when I first started teaching, I was nervous about it. You know, I was like, oh no, I'm going to, you know, what do I have? And then, you know, it kind of came over me. I just got this sense of all, it's just like, well, I love them so much. And that's really all that I need to do in my teaching is to convey just how much I love them and then let the, let them do the rest of it. Cause it really isn't about me. So, um, 
I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. I love how your your practice and relationship with plants is just like rooted in this deep love for them. That feels really beautiful. I'm curious about how, like, I feel like there's so much to working with plants when we think about us being on like indigenous stolen land and like who is having access to plants. And I feel like there's a lot there and I'm wondering like how you think about those topics and yeah, what your thoughts are. Yeah. I mean, that's a major part of my relationship. Um, and you know, not at first, but as my relationship to where I live, plants, the earth and other people, um, evolved through time. That was one of the things that came up was, you know, who am I in relationship to place, to my own lineage, cultures that I'm engaged with, um, and certainly the, the plants from all different places that um, are inhabiting the same space that I'm inhabiting. So it, you know, really at some point in my journey, it was like, well, you know, it's popular and trendy to talk about like living in place and being connected to the land and all the things. And it occurred to me that like, I really um, couldn't bypass that part of the relationship and say I had a connection to my place or to the plants that grow here to this region of the world that has raised me, that housed me, that's hosted me without looking at that um, and acknowledging everything that I could about my positionality in that. So my position as a settler immigrant, um, white person in place, in this place. And that's, so that's always a part of it for mm -hmm. me is, is, and I don't always know what to do about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's lots of things that you can do, you know, to, um, to engage with that, uh, that I could talk about, but the biggest thing is that that has to be part of our love for me is that, oh yeah, I have to. So for instance, you know, I actually wrote a poem about this um, and it's published in the name of the place. I can't remember right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was poems for the end of the world or something like that. Um, and about loving polluted rivers. So it's like we, we, we talk about wanting to be in place and we talk about wanting to be connected and have secure attachment and back to the land and all the, all that. And it's like, but we turn our nose up at our polluted waters and our polluted places, you know, like, oh, that's polluted, you know, and I've done it, you know, oh, this lake is polluted. This river is polluted. And finally I thought, how can I say I love a place if I'm turning my nose up at it? And I feel like it's the same you know, the river wants to be loved <laughs> just as it is. And I feel like it's the same with our relationship, our socio-political, economic, racialized relationship to 
to where we are in time and place is that we can't um, really fully be in it unless we are ex- we are aware of what it means to be who we are, where we are, and how we got there. Mm. Yeah, there's like lineage and ancestry and like lineages of belonging and home. I um I've been thinking a lot about what home means to me, and I was just having a conversation about this yesterday. Um, so it feels really sweet to be bringing it back to to this conversation now. Um, and I feel like for me, home is a place where all parts of you are welcome and accepted. And when I think of it in that context and think about finding home with plants, I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. That's really, really beautiful. Yeah. When you talk about the river wanting to be loved, I just hear this like aliveness in that and this like animist perspective um, and I'm wondering if there's anything you want to share about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, definitely would say that my primary um, practice, if you want to call it that, is animism. Mm-hmm. And that's really was taught to me by my teachers, but also the plants in place and really. Um, the river and the trees Mm -hmm. and just really just naturally, I didn't even know what animism was, you know, that wasn't even a thing when I first started out on this or maybe people were talking about it, but we didn't have the internet. So, (laughs) and I didn't have a TV, so Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything. I was just doing it. Um, and that was the same thing that came up with certain ideas around quote unquote social justice. I hate to use that word now, but, um, (laughs) there's so many other connotations, but you know, it's like, like that was just like, oh, I really just felt like if, if I'm going to be in relationship with now with the present and not try to get away from it, Mm -hmm. which I mean, I think everybody in this time has at least for a while tried. And, you know, I try on and off still, (laughs) you know, can we just, uh, you know, pretend like this isn't happening? Um, I was recently, I'd say in the last five years, probably three or four years ago, read a book by Donna Haraway. And the book is called Staying with the Trouble. And I feel like she really spoke to that. Um to something that I had already really felt, but just, it was so validating to just, and she calls this time the Thulucine, spelled C-H-T-H-U, Thulu, L-U-C-E-N-E, like phonic. Mm-hmm. So the Thulucine, which is, you know, the time of basically the deep, being in the deep now. And being with the trouble of everything that's going on right now, instead of um, trying to bypass it or, and, you know, I think there's times when we have to do that. Like, I think there's certainly times for our mental health or, you know, I don't want to, you know, forget that, you know, this is a, is a practice, right. Mm -hmm. But that uh, 
that we are, if we're just going to stay in it and stay with it. Uh, so in, in back to animism, for me, when I was really present, when I can be really present, I can just perceive how much of the world is alive and dynamic and and speaking mm-hmm. and listening. Yeah. I love that so much. But I feel like that's it. That's the piece that's there of like being present and actually paying attention and slowing down enough to be able to be in connection and to be able to notice. Um, And I think for me, that's so much of what writing poetry is also, is like slowing down and paying attention and being present. And I didn't actually realize that you wrote poetry too. Yeah. I'm going to find that. Hear about that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to find. So I, I do write poetry. In fact, that's my favorite thing to do. (laughs) That's my favorite Um, thing to do too. (laughs) It's it's really all I want to do all day, every day. Um, Other than um, it was in it was in entropy magazine in there. It's like an imprint called enclave. Um, And the poem is, it's called final poems. And um, the poem is how to love a polluted river. So do you have that? Do you want to read it to us? Do you have? Sure. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to hear it. (laughs) Awesome. All right. How to love a polluted river. May we no longer agree to walk on by, eyes forward, breath left behind us, like the heavy bluster of exhaust, falling empty on you, rushing a sanctuary of post-industrial dross. Mm. Most don't even notice you spend every day flowing through our subliminal aversion. I don't know anyone that says they consented to being abandoned with nothing but rusty comfort. The smokestack in ruins still shapes the village horizon, crumbling over your banks. We all push on, ravaged. I walk the old railroad bed, searching for some wild plan. I track boggy edges and crayfish skeletons. I look for water quality indicators, signs, and good omens. I find shards of colonial pots, deserted fossils, and imagine I hear the beat of frantic footsteps fleeing from the conquest. I let my feet sink in like a willow twig cut and planted in muck, trusting time. They can grow into a huge tree like that. I listen to the polyrhythmic tempo splashing over water-hewn rocks as blood pushes past the edges of my own arteries, both washing loose the mineral dust of eons. I hang my head over, humbled in exile. I look into the current like a coyote searching side to side for shelter in the subdivision. I wonder, aren't we all gracious things standing full of creation's riotous beauty. 
The prayers of our ancestors still vibrating against us, an invisible stronghold, like gravity presses down beneath the sun, our bones impassioned, like thin fire racing under skin. My tears wallow down, I inhale and exhale. Rattling praise, my mind dives in headlong, as if it were possible to step in up to my mouth and open up wide, gulping down past a thousand brave bellies that drank here before water treatment systems and chlorine, shattered jugs once dipped in open toward the flow and filling an ordinary act of radical moisture, now impossible. I wish someone had taught me how to talk to water from someplace deep inside. Beside you, I feel so small, but still I speak, my voice and offering. Even if you're dark and surly, undrinkable, I must say that I have loved you. And um, that last part about the jug comes from one of my teachers, Tom Porter, who's a Mohawk elder from Akwesasne. And um, I took some classes with him. And he was saying in one of the classes how there was a certain way, and I don't remember what the way was, that you would put your jug in the water if you were making medicine. So like you'd go to the river and put your, the medicine people would put their jugs in a certain, in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. So whether I think it was coming into the jug or maybe it was going away, but, and I remember at the time thinking, imagine being able to stick a, take a jug and put it in the water and drink it. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. <laughs> that ending, I was like, ah. and the phrase ride is beauty, that is going to stick with me for a while, I think. <laughs> um, that was so beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. I would love to hear anything you want to share about your relationship to poetry, what your process is like, all the things. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, my process is like, Usually I go out in for a walk. I live in a rural area, so we have a lot of woods and old fields and back trails and stuff. And um, I go out and I just let my mind wander and things come to me. Mm. Poems kind of something comes through in my, in my thinking. And I, um, and then I write it down sometimes. So, um, sometimes it's in the morning, mm. I, you know, I, it, things just, it's sort of like, it's just the processes it sort of comes and I just write it down and I don't use a formula. I don't, know anything about writing poetry. I know nothing about, like I've, I've, I did take a poetry class and it was actually really good, but it kind of discouraged me to be honest, because I was like, oh, I've been doing this all wrong. <laughs> I, <hate that. laughs> 
I mean, I, there were some really, I did learn some really good things, but then I stopped writing poetry for a while because I was like, Oh, I, like, I, I didn't realize there were like so many rules that I was breaking kind of. Um, yeah. So, um, I just like putting words together Mm -hmm. and I like playing with them. Yeah. And I like, I like metaphors and I like symbols. And so I, I think of it as like creating symbols, like, like Mm -hmm. using words to convey patterns. It's like a form of pattern recognition, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I love writing as symbols too. I also have no idea how to write poetry. I just write <laughs> it because I love it. <laughs> that's that's my process too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's beautiful. I think that like with any type of art, um, that's like that's the art that I care about engaging with, that I care about making is like not whatever's following the rules, but whatever is like coming from the heart or feels intuitive or just like feels right in the moment. I'm like, that's, that's what matters to me. It's like, for me, it's like a song. It's like, so another thing that happens to me when I'm like in the garden or in the woods or whatever is like, I just feel like singing, you know? And sometimes it's just like, I don't even know. It's a song I'm making up. Like, it's just, I'm so happy that I'm singing And, and poetry is the same way. Although it could be happy or sad with poetry, you know, it could be, I'm in torment, which is another part of my process sometimes, but you know, it's like, I'm like crying or I'm like, I'm singing, you know? And And so it's really, it's spontaneous. It's just like, it's just there. It's just something that wants to express itself in this way, in the moment. And then sometimes I, I mean, obviously like that poem, I read, you know, I edited several times before I submitted it. So, you know, but the raw stuff, that's how it happens. Yeah. That's usually how it happens for me too. And like, I'll go back and edit or change or add or whatever a lot of times, but they usually come out like, and I don't necessarily know what I'm going to write about, but the idea will come and I'm just like, okay, like that's what. Exactly. That's exactly. (laughs) I remember there was this one poet I was reading about. I can't remember who it was, of course, but, and they were like, I never added my poems. Mm. And I was like, I love that. I mean, I could, I don't, I think I would always, I don't think I could do it, but I get it. Like, like that feeling of just like, that's it. This is how it came out. That's how it is. This is it. Yeah. The other thing is you could never stop editing. I mean, I could go back through that whole poem again, like a hundred more times and Mm -hmm. redo it. Oh yeah. There's always that question of like, when is it actually done once you start? (laughs) It's not because it's a poem, right? It's like, it's a living thing, Mm -hmm. right? Especially by the animism, it really is. It's like it's a whole thing. It's a being that's changing, growing. I really believe that. And I love that, like, at least for my poems, I'm like, this means something to me, but it doesn't mean something, you know, like it could mean something completely different to you. Like it's alive and changing, like it's changed by whoever engages with it and given new meaning. And that feels so lovely. A hundred percent. You know, I think any writing is like that. And so just to mention another author, um, um, Tyson Yunkaporta, who wrote the book Sand Talk, which I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. He's, um, 
Australian Aborigines. I don't know what nation or, but um, he says that in the beginning of his book, he says that my hope for this book is that everybody is going to have, this book is going to interact. There will be a synergy between you and everything in here that will create something unique in every person who reads it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, and that it's basically memoir, but I think it's true with anything that you're reading, any writing. Mm-hmm. I hope that for these podcast conversations too, that they come alive for people. I bet. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think they're received so differently and engaged with so differently for every single person and make everybody think of something different or spark something different. And some, and I think that's the coolest thing. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's anti-standardization. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> here for the nuance and the magic yeah. <laughs> yeah I can't put a poem in a box and be like this is what it is how boring <laughs> right yeah I would love to talk a little bit more about something that you've mentioned and I know is part of your work of working with like Italian folk medicine and Italian practices and I guess I'm curious, like you mentioned growing up Catholic. So I'm wondering how like your spiritual practice has evolved and how connecting with your ancestors and your ancestral lineage is part of that. Yeah. I mean, that's a, (laughs) you know, that's a, that's a big thing. Um, So I'll do my best to, (laughs) to, um, so you know, I definitely like got left the Catholic church. Um, and, um, and I, I definitely, you know, have major issues with the church. Um, I, so that's a whole other thing too, but you know, the church has been just so damaging, um, Catholicism and folk Catholicism, particularly Benedicaria, which is a form of Italian folk medicine, that is linked to folk Catholicism. Um, that is really something of its own. And it's also part of Italian folk medicine, along with what you might, might call it witchcraft. Um, these are things, Benedicaria, Italian witchcraft, folk medicine, folk magic are all words that you're going to hear around um, Southern Italian folk medicine, um, or peasant medicine. And everybody has an idea of what each of them means <laughs> or what each of them doesn't mean. Um, a lot of people have expressed a desire to, you know, go back to the pre-Christian traditions of magic, um, and healing or the pagan, um, or even before that, and it is hard to do that because it was syncretic. It be, it kind of got folded into Christianity um, and syncretized with it. And a lot of what we might call witches or old village healers took refuge in Catholicism. It's where they kind of hid. So um, pulling that apart, there's people who have tried to do it. Um, I don't think it's been done very well, in my opinion, pulling it apart because we don't really know 
mm. what happened 4,000 years ago or how it was. Um, so we're having to make a lot of additions. <laughs> we're having to pull together pieces of things and kind of fill in the blanks with what it might have been. In terms of a tradition, basically it is not a standardized tradition. It's not a system. So like Italian folk medicine, it, it's really um, a conglomerate of um, localized, usually localized, um, and at least regional practices, healing practices. So it can be different from one village to the next, like in Southern Italy. In terms of the Italian diaspora, um, the one that I'm most familiar with is the U.S. diaspora. And so um, that's another thing because the immigrants came here, brought their traditions with them. And these, these are people who consider themselves Catholics. Mm. Uh, and continue to practice them here with adaptations made for dealing with the situations that they were in, as well as, um, being a mixed group of people. And by mixed, I mean coming from all different regions of Southern Italy, all living in the same enclave. And again, like I said, they didn't even speak the same languages a lot of times. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. So for you, like, do you, I'm like, how? I'm not even sure I'm trying to ask. Do you know, like, where your ancestors were coming from, like what parts of Italy they're from? Like, are you connecting with practices from those places or like, is it not really known? Oh yeah, I do. I, I, and I've spent time there. So, you know, my Nona, my grandmother was from the city of Benevento, which is in Campania. Mm -hmm. And then my Nono, my grandfather was from Calabria and a little village there that I've been to. I still have family. In fact, I'm going in, if all goes well, I'm going um, in May, May to June. I hope all goes well for you. Yay. Um, so, um, yeah, so I, I have that. So, and both my grandparents were immigrants. Mm -hmm. And so is working with plants part of, connecting with that, those ancestral practices for you? Yeah. I mean, they were part of those practices, a big part of them. And for every traditional culture, plants were a part of it because people centered plants. They, there were all of our indigenous cultures were plant-based. Um, so yes, the plants, and, and in fact, the plants are what got me into some of my ancestral remembrance was just my work with plants from that were naturalized or from Europe, realizing the familiarity that I had with them. Mm -hmm. And they, they were plants that my ancestors used and that were part of our, sometimes day, our daily life as part of my daily life growing up, usually 
it was with cooking, you know, Italian herbs and stuff that were used in cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another big thing was wines. <laughs> Wine mm-hmm. was a big, is it, is it big vehicle for plant medicine? Um, and wine is a big part of Italian culture. And my no, no always, whenever anything was wrong, if you were sick or didn't feel good or had a sunburn, whatever it was, it was like, Oh, have a little glass of wine. That'll make you feel better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so that's, you know, really my main focus of my work is, is with plants and then everything else is sort of, you know, comes out from that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's, I'm thinking about my partner who is Italian and Jewish um, and is not really connected to like their ancestral practices. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts for people like them who might be listening, who are wanting to connect with like Italian folk medicine or yeah, just like the practices of their ancestors, like it feels like a daunting and big idea. <laughs> Is there like a place that you would want them to start? Yeah. Um, I mean, the plants is a great place to start just ancestral plants. Um, there's a couple other places, um, music mm. and language. Mm. So, uh, and then asking if you have family members that have any information at all that are alive, asking them anything, even little bits of things. Um, and then the other thing is like ancestry.com, which is a place where I've done lots and lots of ancestral work. I know a lot about, I'm half Italian, I'm half Italian and half Irish. And I know a lot about my Italian side because I had living people to transmit the information to me, but on my Irish side, um, it's, and they were, they immigrated in the mid 1800s, most of them during the famine. And so it's been more generations and a lot of it has been lost. So I found out a lot through ancestry.com just doing research, but you know, if you just want to keep it simple, um, you know, food. I mean, that's a great place for Italian culture, mm-hmm. food. And then, uh, listening to the music, listen, even just listening to the language. Um, so another teacher of mine, Martin Prechtal, um, years ago, he came to teach at an herb conference here in New York state at a green nations gathering. And that's where I met him. And, I read his books and stuff. And he said, if you, if you want to start kind of waking up your own ancestral memory, just start listening to the music in the late in the language. You don't even have to learn it. Yeah. Just, just listening to it. So, and then plants. So the taste and smell and part of one of the things I teach my own students is tasting and smelling because taste and smell goes right to your, to your limbic system, Mm. which is where memory is held. Mm. 
Now, <clears throat> there's no scientific evidence for this, but um, there's plenty of anecdotal evidence for this mm-hmm. um, that, you know, tasting something like sweet basil or Genovese basil, basil licol in Italian, um, parsley, even some very common plants that like you can get in the grocery store can connect you to that ancestral memory. Mm. Um, And even childhood memories, if you have childhood memories. I really recommend that people do this. And part of this also is in relationship to assimilation and white supremacy in terms, and I've actually just recently posted a bit about this on my Instagram, where part of the way that whiteness operates is by homogenizing Mm. ethnic groups. And so the more we identify with white culture and lose our connection to how we got here, we become more alienated. You know, and it's not going back in time. And so it's like not going, we're not going back. We're we're really here now and remembering how we got here. Remembering who our ancestors are, remembering our lineage, remembering what happened. And then becoming aware that we did have all of us had ethnic diversity at one point. Mm. You know, and then what are we going to do with it? I guess is the next question. But I think just being able to differentiate and divest from assimilation and homogenization is something that is um, super helpful in terms of being able to go forward in the future in a more equitable way because we don't see ourselves as lumped into one group that is in constant um, um, division from other groups. Yeah, that's so interesting. I never really thought about, yeah, white supremacy as homogenizing Um, but that's so true. That's like how different ethnic groups from Europe came. And then some of them like weren't white at first and then became like white. Um, that, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So it disempowers white supremacy. So one of the things happening right now is this like whole, like whiteness is not an ethnicity. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's like, we're like, it's like all of a sudden now people are worried about white genocide or something like that. Like, like, (laughs) It's just like, like, you don't like, 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 you know, they're threatened by, they're threatened by uh, other groups coming into the U.S. as immigrants or other groups that are already here or sharing um, power, dismantling power structures because they're afraid they're going to lose their power. And this has been, this is, it's, um, it's. It's been um, conflated with whiteness and white supremacy. Like white isn't, there's no white homeland, man, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. (laughs) 
Um, I think I want to ask you the last question that I always ask on this show, which is just because the name of the podcast is Living Open, what does living open mean to you? And what comes up when you hear that? <sighs> I, you know, I think a lot about this, to be honest. Um, I think living open, the way that I would interpret that is living sincerely. Hmm. So really without pretense, um, I guess maybe you could call it being really natural. Mm. I don't, I, I don't like hiding things. Like I don't, I don't like representing myself falsely. I guess that some of it is like when I think about living open, it's like in any way, even in myself, mm -hmm. I mean, I know we all do it, especially on social media. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When you're talking though, I'm just imagining like really soft leaves and really soft like meadow grass. I don't know. That's what your words brought up for me. Mm, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's a softness to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. Can you tell people where they can find you and work with you online? Yes. So, um, the rootcircle.com is my website. Um, I am um, writing a book about plants of Italian folk, Italian American folk medicine right now. So I'm about to launch a Patreon mm. probably next week where um, I'll be sharing a bunch of stuff about not just Italian folk medicine, but all kinds of folk and ancestral remembrance type topics. Um, I'm on Instagram at the root circle. I'm on Facebook too, but I don't really do a lot on there. I do a lot more personal stuff on there. It's another personality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, that's, pretty much where I am these days. Okay, great. Um, I'll put links to all that in the description so people can check it out. And uh, thank you so much for coming. Thanks, Thanks for having me. This yeah, was a great talk. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.